so I mentioned just a few minutes ago that we had VBS this past week, and the theme of VBS was uh, to dig in, to dig, um, dig deep um, into archaeology. They, they, it was really cool. They, they, they looked at, at the ancient ruins of, of Jesus' time. They, uh, the kids actually went out to the volleyball court, and they had marked off a little archaeological dig site, and they got to find little coins. So if you see a little colored plastic coin laying around, um, some kid has lost their archaeological find, um, and uh, they might be devastated for that. Uh, but, but it was really cool to watch them begin to see and to piece together that that really happened a long time ago. That really happened a long time ago, and, and to see it on the timeline of history. And uh, uh, last week we talked about this idea that God is infinite, and in that we talked about God doesn't fit into time. And today we're going to look at how God is eternal in that. And so uh, in a May 2019 article that was in the New Yorker was titled, If God is Dead, Your Time is Everything. And in this article, James Wood, the the author of the article, James Wood, was critiquing a book titled This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom by Matthias Hagland. And he states in his writing, he says, The problem with eternity is not that it doesn't exist, Hagland is uninterested in the pen dancing of proof and disproof, but that it is undesirable and incoherent. It kills meaning and collapses value. This is a difficult truth to learn because we are naturally fearful of loss and therefore attached to the idea of eternal restoration. So to simplify all of that, because as I read that, my head starts to kind of want to explode trying to to process that. To simplify it, he says this. He says, the idea of eternity destroys meaning and value. The idea of eternity destroys meaning and value. And so when we, when we take that quote and we look at a God who is eternal, how can we reconcile that? Well, I want to remind us of, of an important point that I said last week that I, that I believe helps us unlock the magnificent majesty and mystery of God. When we can come to understanding this, it helps us understand so much more, is that our finite minds cannot comprehend the infiniteness of God. So remember that. That's kind of going to be our key phrase for this whole series, is that our minds aren't big enough to comprehend God. Our, mind, our finite minds cannot wrap itself around the infiniteness of God, everything that he does. It's extremely important, especially because we're going to look at two attributes of God today that go hand in hand with each other that, that are very, can be very hard to, to grasp. And that is that God is eternal and that God is self-existent. God is eternal and God is self-existent. So let's start with eternity. When the common man, like myself, meditates on the word eternity, our finite minds, our minds that have limits, our minds that have a capacity, cannot comprehend that God is eternal. We struggle due to our concept of time. And just this morning, I was reading, um, I, you've probably picked up that I like the Marvel movies, the, the Iron Man and Captain America and all this stuff. Well, this past week, Disney launched a new series called Loki, which is about one of the bad guys. And I watched the first episode yesterday, and it was all about timelines. And this morning, I was reading about all the different ways they can manipulate time and, and all this stuff, and And as I read it, I was like, 
I'm getting so confused, I just need the next episode to drop. Like, quit trying to tell me what's going on, just show me the next episode. Because I have a hard time with the concept of time. I have a hard time being on time. I have a hard time leaving on time. I just have a hard time with the concept of time. But each of us has a time for our lives. Each of us has a beginning time, and we each have an end time. If you're sitting here today, you don't know your end time yet. But I would bet that most of you, if not all of you, know exactly when you were born. For me, I was born on a Saturday, 1148 a.m., June 23rd, 1979. I know exactly what time I was born. That was when I took my first breath. I know the exact moments that my kids were born because I was there. And I remember holding them for the first time immediately after they were born. And I also know that unless Jesus comes before this, there's going to be a time that I breathe my last breath and pass away. I don't know when that is. The internet tries to tell me that with these great little games you can play. But I don't know when I'm going to die. God knows that, but I don't. But my point is that each of us has a beginning and we have an end time. It fits together. And so we can, we can look at that concept. We know that this was w- when we were born. And we also know that as we lose loved ones or those close to us, that there's going to be a day that we die. But for God, there is no beginning and there is no ending point. And that's a struggle to understand. It's a struggle to understand that before time began, God was there. Because for everything that we have and everything that we see and every person we know, we can figure out their beginning point. But God was there before that, before everything. And that's a really, really difficult thing. And I want us to look at one verse in particular today, and it's Revelation 1, verse 8. Revelation 1, verse 8. And here in the first chapter of Revelation, John is is beginning to lay out this prophetic word to the churches. And, and in chapter 1, he is, is, is starting what's about to be seven letters to seven churches. And these seven letters, if you read through it, will be warnings to each church that, that says, this is what I see happening, and, and I'm giving you a warning of what is going to happen. But here in verse 8 of chapter 1, this, this verse sums up everything we need to know about God's eternity. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. This verse tells us everything. The first phrase, I am the Alpha and Omega, tells us everything. Alpha and Omega, what what are these letters? I first... You know, I heard Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, growing up in church, but I really never was around Greek until I went to college, and you, all the fraternities and sororities have their Greek letters, and you start to figure that out, and, and you start to kind of learn the Greek alphabet, but you don't know it. Uh, but then when, you, when I got to seminary and I had to take that wonderful class we call Greek, I got to learn the Greek alphabet, and I had to memorize it, and then I would have to write it down, and I'm like, I don't know, and then we had a special... We had to download a special keyboard for our computer so that then we could type in Greek, and I never learned where the keys were, and so it was just kind of a hunt-and-peck method because Greek can be very confusing. But what you do need to know is that Alpha and Omega 
are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Alpha is the first, omega is the last. And when we look through it, and he actually says it later on in Revelation, this signifies the beginning and the end. And so when Jesus, or when God says, I am the alpha and the omega, God is saying, I was there, I'm the very beginning of everything, and I'm the very end of everything. I was there before, and I was there after. And so that helps us understand that God has always been there. But the hard part for us is these are not literal translations about the beginning and the end, because with God there is no beginning and there is no end. Because if we said there was a beginning of God and if we said there was an end of God, now we're putting limitations on God. And so we're kind of taking away his infiniteness if we try to put a beginning and an end on him. He's always been there. He's forever. He's eternal. He was there at the beginning of creation, and he'll be there at the end of time. But then he goes on into this verse, and he tells us something else. While he was there before, and while he's going to be there after, look at what the last part of verse 8 says. Who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. When it says he is, he was, and he always will be, it means he's here now. He's present with us. When we talk about the infiniteness of God, we talk about how there's no constraints and and we can't put him in a location because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. When we talk about the eternity of God, he was there before. He's there at the end. But when it says who is, that means he's here right now. He is, was, and always will be. Present, past, and future tense. That's a promise for us to know that no matter where we go in life, God is going to always be with us. Because he tells us he is, he was, and he always will be. So if we're talking at the beginning, if we're talking that God is in the beginning and the end, and that he is, is and was and always will be, we put that into our definition of time, and that limits it. So how do, we exactly, how do we exactly define time when we're talking about eternity? How do we define time when we're talking about eternity? Because that's, that's a pretty difficult concept to grasp. Um, I'm not a physics person to understand all how everything works. But there's some guys that try and help us out in this. C.S. Lewis says that as far as he were concern, concerned, if he were trying to define eternity in time, he might do it with an illustration. And that illustration is this. A piece of paper infinitely extended. So in my mind, when I say infinitely extended, as far as my eye can see and beyond, it's infinitely extended. And if we can think of a piece of paper infinitely extended, and then on that paper, draw a short line, that line would begin. It would have a definitive movement, And it would have a time that it ended and a place where it ended, and that would be time. So you've got this infinite sheet of paper with a short line that has a beginning and an end, and that is time. Plato had an idea of eternity, which is very similar to timelessness, and he called it the negation of time. And I'm not going to get into exactly what that is, but everybody has a different view of what time when it comes to eternity is. And I like this one because I think this is, can help us out best. Augustine, 
who wrote many, many great things, and he wrote that God created time. He said God created it because it began. But then he, had, he said that time is very difficult and had a famous answer to a question. And he says, if no one asks me about time, I know. But if someone asks me and I wish to explain it to them, I do not know. Think about that. In your mind, you know. But you can't explain it to somebody, so you just tell them you don't know. Because it's just going to wrap and wrap and wrap and just get more and more confusing. That's where our finite mind cannot comprehend the infiniteness of God. A couple things I want us to see about God's eternity here. And I want to take a sidebar, um, and I've mentioned his infiniteness a lot today. And, and, and all throughout this series, we're going to see that. Because last week I said that we needed to begin with his infiniteness because it's apparent in all of his other attributes. Well, as we go through each attribute of God throughout this series you're going to see that they touch on each other all the way throughout. And so you might hear us repeat something that we've said before and be like, they already said that point. Well, it applies to that same attribute because it just kind of goes all together. Because as we put each attribute of God together, it creates who he is. And so they all kind of touch and work off of each other, and so we'll do that. So how does God's eternity relate to his infinity? Well, it's simple. God's infinity is his eternity. God's infinity is his eternity. The nature of the eternity of God and its relationship to infinity is that infinity is infinity relative to space and is his immensity relative duration. His infinity is his infinity. His infinity is his eternity, excuse me. So you see that it's related to eternity and eternity is related to infinity. It's relative to the duration. And that's a lot to say that can get very confusing. God's infinity is his eternity. And I think this is a good way to wrap it up on this. Theologian Stephen Sharnock says this. As it is his immensity to be everywhere, so is it his eternity to be always. And I put the emphasis on those words myself. But his immensity to be everywhere, which we talked about his omnipresence last week, it is his eternity to be always. I feel like I'm taking a star test. And it says, if this is to this, then this is to blank. If God's immensity is to be everywhere, his eternity is to be always. Put it in the same context. The second thing I want us to see is he is the eternal God. And so he exists without beginning, without end, and without secession. God's eternity is duration without beginning and without end and without secession. And this is a hard concept to understand because our lives move in a chronological secession, right? And in God, there is no secession. And we could do a whole sermon series just on that. But everything in him is eternal. He does not have a beginning. He does not have an ending. And he does not know secession in the acquirement of knowledge or experience. When you are a baby, your body and your mind develops to where you learn to crawl, and then you learn to walk, and then you learn to talk. Then you get potty trained. You begin to sleep through the night. 
begin to learn to read and write, begin to learn to do your taxes. Your knowledge is acquired the more older and older you get in a succession. And some of us start to acquire knowledge at different points as we get older, but especially when we're young and we're developing, there's a succession, a chronological succession of how we are acquiring our knowledge and our experience. There's a point in time, I mean, we had a milestone moment in our family this week. We let our girls walk to the pool for the first time by themselves. That's a big step. As a parent, that's a big step. It's a milestone moment. And we're not going to put that, like, we're not making a scrapbook that says, the first time they walked to the pool. But, but for us, that, that was an experience they learned how to go handle themselves. That's an independence that comes with that. With God, with his eternity, he comprehends everything as if we're, we're only present now. He sees the here and now. Since he exists without beginning and without end and without succession, everything is always. He sees it always in the present. And if you want to read more about that, you can research that because there's some people that then begin to break that down that gets really um, confusing, and I'd love to help you find some resources on that. Um, But I think it's important that when we look at Revelation 1.8, and it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, we see again at the end of the book of Revelation, that was at the beginning, at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22.13, look what it says. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so he's, he's, he's bookending it, saying, I was here at the beginning, before the beginning. I'm here after the end, but I'm also here now. He's eternal. And with that eternity, the eternity of God, with that attribute of eternity of God, Another attribute connects with itself, and that is what we call self-existence. God is self-existent. And this was a very hard concept for me to grasp when I first learned about it, um, because what that means is that God's existence is not caused by or in any way dependent on anything else. God is not from anything, he's not through anything, and he's not to anything. God is God. He doesn't depend on anything else. Exodus 3, 14 and 15, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so you see when God says, I am who I am, and then continues on and says, I'm the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, you see that he's been there before. And then he says, my name will be remembered through all generations. You see that he will be remembered after. He is who he is. I am who I am. For me, I am Brian because of God. God, I am who I am. He also says in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is saying, I am everything. I am creation. I am salvation. I am good. I am Father. I am Son. I am Holy Spirit. I am the universe. I am am air. I am water. I am who I am. When we say that God is self-existent, there's a harsh reality that we have to face ourselves. And when I first heard it, I thought it was a harsh reality, but ever since I heard it, and I really began to process it and marinate it and think about it, it's become a beautiful, comforting, full of hope quality of God. And it's simply this. If God is self-existent, God doesn't need me. We live in a world that people need me. Even if they don't want your advice, we give advice because they need us. We can help them. We can solve their problem. Even if they don't have a problem, we can solve it. We create one and solve it. God doesn't need me. When I say God is self-existent, God doesn't need me and God doesn't need you. When we say that he's self-existent, it means he is not dependent on anything or anyone. Everything that has been created exists according to his power, his plan, and his purpose. God exists to himself. And when something is created, it is dependent on something else. Think about this. You're making a loaf of bread. And you can put the flour and the water and, and, and the salt and the sugar and everything that needs to go in the bread and put it in the oven, and it doesn't do anything. That dough is dependent on something. It's dependent on yeast. For the dough to rise and become a loaf of bread, it needs yeast. It's dependent on that. We are dependent on air and water and food. Babies are dependent on their their parents to provide nurture and shelter and clothing. Their grass is dependent on rain and sunshine. Everything is dependent on something else. But God has not created things or dependent on other things and ultimately on God. God depends on nothing. Before everything, before every created thing is something else. There's always something else before. Even when the universe was created, what was before? God. This is where his eternity comes into this self-existence. God is first. Every created thing exists for the sake of some later thing, but God is last of all, the one for whom all things exist. God is utterly independent. And I love that. That the God that I serve does not depend on anything but himself. Because when we put our faith and dependence on someone here on earth, there's a greater than zero chance that they're going to let you down. Because oftentimes they're depending on something else and something else and something else, and it just continues to go. But with God, he's only depending on himself. God is self-existent in the fact that, what, and who he is. 
He's self-existence in that, what, and who he is. Look at Exodus 3.14 again. It says, I am what I am. I am who I am. And when he says this, he's explaining himself, meaning he needs no explanation. That's all we need to know is God says, I am who I am. And then we study the attributes to learn more about him, and we grow closer to him through learning that. So what do these attributes have to do with me? How can I apply these two attributes to my, the life that I am living now? Well, think back to that article that I mentioned at the very beginning. And he makes the statement that I, I, the idea of eternity is undesirable and incoherent and destroys meaning and value. The idea of eternity is undesirable and incoherent and destroys meaning and value. And I could not disagree more. Because for me, the eternity of God is everything to desire. And it creates meaning and value because it gives me hope in eternity. This idea that God is eternal means that I can put my faith that when it says you will have eternal life, I will have eternal life. Because God is eternal. The last line of that quote says that eternity is attached to the idea of eternal restoration. And can I just tell you that when I read that statement for the first time, and I read that the eternity is attached to the idea of eternal restoration, I audibly said, duh. Because isn't that what we place our hope in? Is eternal restoration in, in, through the salvation of Jesus Christ? That makes every bit of sense to me. And he's trying to make that look like a bad thing. The hope of the gospel, the hope of salvation, is it leads to eternal restoration. It leads to living eternity with God. Jesus proclaimed to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And that is what eternity in God is. It's paradise. It's eternal paradise. But one of the things that we have to be careful about when we look at eternity, because I think so often we, we kind of go in one direction and forget about the other direction on this. And we only talk about the good and not, not, not the other side of it. When we look at eternity, we focus just on eternal life in heaven and not that there is an eternal life in damnation. And we, we try and minimize the effects of hell. And we've actually seen this over the past couple of decades that people are now beginning to say that there's really not a literal hell. And I disagree with that statement. Hell is real and eternity is very real. Eternity there is very real. And, you know, you have moments in your life that someone will say something to you or, or speak to you or ask you a question that you will always remember. And I had one of these moments happen at, at church camp a couple, several years ago. I had a sixth grade student talking to me. We were talking about this idea of, of eternity in heaven, eternal life with God. And he raised his hand, and, and he is a pretty sharp kid. Um, he raised his hand and, and just kind of sheepishly looked at me and said, what if I don't want eternal life? What if I don't want eternal life? And it kind of took me back for a second, and then I had to realize that in his mind, he was processing eternity within our concept of time. Remember our finite minds cannot understand the infiniteness of God? He was trying to con put, put 
eternity onto his timeline, his beginning and the end. He's like, I don't want to live forever. This life is horrible. Why do I want to live forever? And I had to explain to him, you don't have a choice about living forever. You don't have a choice about living forever. Eternity in hell is real. In Mark 3.29, Jesus speaks of an eternal sin. In, in Matthew 12.32, uh, speaks of a sin that will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. And he says that sins, <clears throat> sins not explicitly named as the eternal sin result in eternal destruction in Thessalonians 1.9. Hebrews 6.2 talks about eternal judgment. Matthew 25.46 talks about eternal punishment. And Matthew 25.41 talks about eternal fire which undermines our finite categories. There is a very, very real chance and reality that if you do not believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, that you will spend eternity in hell. And I don't say that to preach hellfire and brimstone or to scare anybody or anything. I just want to preach reality. As we talk about the eternity of God, there's eternal life with him and there's eternal life separated from him. If we put this concept of eternity and the possibility of eternal life with God or eternal life with eternal destruction and punishment with a self-existence God, this is where we see the true beauty of the gospel. Because think about this for a minute. If there's a choice but to live eternity in hell or to live eternity in paradise with God, and then we look at that statement that God doesn't need me. He doesn't need us to go to heaven. He doesn't need to live with us forever. He chooses to. This God who is infinite, this God who is eternal, this God who is who he says he is and self-existent and doesn't need us, chooses us and gives us a choice to be with him. Isn't that cool? That he chooses to have an eternal relationship with us? You didn't get to choose your parents. My kids didn't get to choose me. And I feel bad for them on that sometimes. We didn't get that choice. And we have to live with our parents until we reach a certain age. But God calls you to him. And then you have a choice to say yes or no. God calls you. He stirs in your heart and says, I am who I am. Believe that and you will be with me. Everything I've said I've done, I've done. Everything I say I'm going to do, I will do. Believe that, and you will be with me. We have a choice where we spend eternity. We don't have a choice if we have eternity, but we have a choice where we spend eternity. Romans 10.9, I said it just a minute ago, says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And when we look at an eternal, self-existent God who gives us that choice, there's beauty in that. So, 
what is your choice? Do you choose this infinite, eternal, self-existent God who can give you hope of eternity with him or do you choose not to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love that you don't need me. I love that you don't need me for anything. Because that just shows how much you love me because you chose me. You chose to have a relationship with me. And I thank you for that on a daily basis. And Lord, I know there's some people in this room that you have chosen and they have not answered the call. That they have not said, yes, I believe. They fought it. Fought it for many years. They've heard the message and never believed. And you've stirred their heart and said, I want you to be with me forever. Father, I pray for if that's anyone in this room that you would rise up the courage for them to say, okay, it's time, I believe. Father, I pray for those of us that have placed our faith in you and that we have secured our eternal salvation with you, Lord, and our eternal place in heaven with you, that this beauty of your eternal self-existence would spur us to go and share the gospel with the world, that it would spur us to go and be bold in our speech and in our actions and in our lives to say, my God is bigger than anything. And my God has always been there, will always be there, and is here now. Let me share about him to you and with you. Father, most of all, we pray prayers of fill this room with your presence, Lord. It's not fill this room with your presence because your presence is here, Lord. Let us feel your presence. Let us know that you are here, that you're guiding every decision of our life, every step we take, every breath we breathe, that you are who you say you are when you say I am who I am. We love you and thank you for all these promises that come through your attributes, Lord. It's your holy name we pray, amen. We're gonna have a short time of response. If you um, are feeling good,